Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. On the last day of her life, Erin Corwin woke around dawn. She got ready quietly, careful not to disturb her sleeping husband, John. The young couple lived in an apartment at the Marine Base in 29 Palms, California. Erin got ready to head off to the nearby Joshua Tree National Park, where she said she was scouting trails for an upcoming visit with her mother. She took her cell phone, kissed her husband goodbye, got behind the wheel of her blue Corolla, and headed off for the day. But Erin would not come back from her trip alive. Welcome to Case Closed. There's a lot of true crime out there, but it seems like the most interesting cases go unsolved. You invest your time in someone's story, only to walk away frustrated when you hit a dead end and the killer's still out there. This is not your average true crime podcast. Case Closed is a show about the times the bad guy didn't get away with it. The times the good guys discover exactly who the killer is and how sometimes that's just the beginning of the story. I should know. My name is Charlie Spicer. I'm an executive editor at St. Martin's Press, and I've been working on these kinds of stories for 33 years. Charlie really has a great instinct for finding these true crime stories that really capture people's attention and don't let go. We do look upon him as an authority, not only within the company, but also within the industry in terms of true crime. Those are a few of my co-workers at St. Martin's Press. And it's true. I've edited hundreds of true crime books, and I've always loved these stories. So much so that I want to share more of these stories with you on Case Closed. In this season, we're going to take a look at one of the most shocking stories I've heard in my time as an editor. The 2014 murder of Erin Corwin, a young Marine wife who drove off into the desert one morning and never came back. A few years ago, Shanna Hogan, a New York Times best-selling true crime author and journalist, began looking into the case. I'm Shanna Hogan, and I've been writing true crime for more than 10 years, including my book, Picture Perfect, about Jody Arias. What Shanna discovered was a story filled with surprises, a young marriage gone wrong, a shocking betrayal, and the shadow cast by the complexities of marine life. She wrote a book about the case, Secrets of a Marine's Wife, which is due to come out on February 26, 2019. In this podcast, you'll hear Shanna talk about what she learned, plus listen to first-hand interviews Shanna did with Erin's family and friends, taking you behind the scenes and deeper into the story. But before we get there, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Who was Erin Corwin? How did she go from being a sheltered teen from a small town to a Marine wife with so many secrets? And how did she meet such an untimely end? 
Aaron Corwin was born on July 15, 1994, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. When she was just two weeks old, her birth mother placed her in foster care. But within a week, Aaron had found a new home. Aaron joined our family when she was three weeks old. And the day she came, I knew she was not leaving. That's Laura Hevlin, Aaron's mom. She and her husband, Bill, were a couple from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a small town about 25 miles west of Knoxville. Laura's parents had fostered many children when she was growing up, inspiring her to become a foster parent herself. By 1994, Laura and Bill had fostered and adopted several children, and they fell in love with Aaron right away. And so Aaron joined the Hevelin House, an ever-growing, always-changing brood where she fit right in. What was Aaron like as a baby? She was itty bitty tea tiny. Mm-hmm. I think she weighed. I think she at the most was five twelve when we got her at three weeks. Scrawny looking little thing. <laughs> Sweet, an easy baby. And even as a baby, she was very like if you came up to her and started, you know, maybe talking to her or whatever. She would have looked at you and gave you a drop-dead look because she didn't know you. Now, very shy. But once she got to know you, she didn't shut up. That shyness and wariness of strangers is something that will come up again and again in Erin's story. But Erin was always comfortable with the Hevelins. She was officially adopted at age three, joining Bill and Laura's two biological children, an adoptive brother, Alex, and a number of foster children. But more than anything, Erin wanted to be a big sister. She got her wish when she was five. The Hevelins adopted Tricia, a baby born with multiple birth defects, including spina bifida, a condition in which the backbone and membranes don't close completely around the spinal cord. We met Tricia when she was five months old. She was in the newborn intensive care unit at UT Hospital. She had multiple birth defects. She had 17 doctors. Trisha's health conditions did not stop Erin from bonding with her new baby sister. She was comfortable around all of the medical equipment that kept Trisha alive, and there was a lot of it. Looking past the oxygen tank, sleep apnea monitor, and feeding tube, Erin could spend hours in the living room where Trisha was situated, making the baby laugh and smile. But despite the Hevelin's care, when she was just three years old, Trisha developed an infection that spread to her bloodstream. Trisha passed away April 29th, 2003. Um, it was hard on Erin. She cried um, because she always wanted to be a big sister. The loss of her baby sister devastated Erin, and the effects would echo throughout her life, although no one could have imagined how much more tragic the story would become. Amidst the loss, Erin's nurturing spirit caused her to turn towards the true passion of her life, animals. She threw herself into training and caring for the family pets. The Hevelins had adopted a whole menagerie. Dogs, cats, guinea pigs, rabbits, and fish. 
and Aaron had a preternatural gift with all of them. But when Aaron was 10, she discovered there was one species she loved above all others. There's a barn that's about four miles from the house, and when she joined the equestrian project, I assured her we were not getting a horse. (laughs) You know. And then she had one given to her. As you might imagine, a pet horse requires quite a bit of work, and Erin began spending a lot of time at the barn. And while she was initially very shy, she gradually became friends with the barn's usual visitors. Oh, Lord, I love that little girl. Linda Comley was one of the regulars. She was quiet, and she was very, she was naive, and it took her a while to, you know, get used to everybody. But uh, she was just a naive girl, happy girl. She'd come over and, you know, it's just, I would venture to say grandma talk, you know, where she could tell me stuff that she couldn't tell other people. And don't ask me what stuff. I'm 75 years old. (laughs) But no, she, I tell you, she was something else. An experienced horse owner, Linda was impressed by the connection Erin had with animals particularly her horse, Riley. She had a way with Riley. Riley was a, oh, how can I put it, on horse. She was a high-strung horse. And it had to take a lot to settle her down, you know, get confidence in someone. That's the important thing with horses. They have got to have confidence in their owner. And she she mastered that. I told her that one day, I said, Aaron. I said, you got something that the good Lord has given you. You stay with it. And you don't listen to all these other people. I said, you've got a way with them, with animals, really. All animals. Erin dreamed about becoming a vet and got a part-time job at a local veterinarian's office. But according to her mom, it was because of her love of animals that the job didn't stick. She realized that she didn't want to be a vet because she didn't want to have to be the person that told the family it was time to put an animal down. So I believe she would have worked with animals in one form or another. Obviously, we didn't get the chance to watch that happen. This episode is supported by the riveting podcast, Unknown History. On June 6, 1944, troops from around the world collided on the longest day in military history. Today we call that day D-Day. And in the 75 years since that epic battle, the full human story has never been told until now. On the podcast, Unknown History... Best-selling historian Giles Milton gives a voice to more than just the famous generals. You'll hear stories from survivors on all sides of the conflict. A teenage Allied conscript who stared death in the face. The daughter of the French butcher. The wife of the panzer commander. And a child who hid in the German bunkers. By the end of the podcast, you'll understand why Giles Milton's books have sold more than two million copies worldwide. Hear about the longest day like it's never been told before. Find Unknown History wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Unknown History.
This episode is supported by the highly anticipated thriller The Escape Room by Megan Golden. Vincent, Jules, Sylvie, and Sam are Wall Street hotshots at the top of their game. They've mastered the art of the deal and celebrate their success in style. And they love to compete, so they jump at the chance to show off their skills in an escape room. But when they get in an elevator and the lights go off and the doors stay shut, it quickly becomes clear that this is no harmless competition. They're in a fight for their lives. Trapped in the dark, the colleagues must put aside their rivalries and work together to solve cryptic clues. But as the game begins to reveal the team's darkest secrets, the stakes mount higher and higher. As tempers fray and the clues turn deadly, they must solve one final chilling puzzle. Which one of them will kill in order to survive? Pre-order The Escape Room by Megan Golden wherever you buy books. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. While Erin was confident at the barn, as she grew into a teenager, friends and family still described her as innocent and sometimes even naive. Her sheltered, shy nature was partly due to the community in which she grew up. Author Shanna Hogan gives us an idea of what life was like in the small town of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Oak Ridge was this very rural community where there wasn't a lot of things going on. Erin ended up getting a job as a teenager at a store called Tractor Supply Company, which kind of speaks to how small this town is because so much of the town is based on agriculture. So many of the residents have barns or keep chicken coops in their backyard. And there's just a few local movie theaters without really, you know, a big mall or anything like that. There's just not a lot to do in Oak Ridge. For fun, Erin and her friends would just drive around and get fast food or go to the barn. And that's just how Erin grew up. I mean, she was an incredible teenager. You couldn't have asked for a better teenager. Was she perfect? No. And one of the biggest things that we had issues about was her keeping her room clean. If that was the biggest problem you had with a teenage daughter, you were you had a very good teenage daughter. <laughs> Absolutely. She was incredible. Absolutely incredible young lady. Erin was homeschooled, but despite her shy personality, she was not at a loss for friends in Oak Ridge. As a teenager, she built a large group through the 4-H club, through her church, and through her barn. It was at that barn that Erin first met Jonathan Wayne Corwin. She was not allowed to date. I mean, like, she had boyfriends, but they would come to our house or she would go to their house, but they weren't allowed to go in cars and go on dates until she turned 16. So on her 16th birthday, John asked me if if he could date her. John was a year older than Erin, a junior at Oak Ridge High School. He was an outdoorsman who liked to shoot guns and go four-wheeling, in contrast to Aaron's docile spirit. But after only a few months, Aaron was head over heels. A lot of people said, what did Aaron and John have in common? There were a lot of personality differences with Aaron and John. While Aaron was into animals and peaceful, happy things, John had kind of a tough, rebellious streak. He was really into shooting guns and going camping and hunting. What I think they did have in common was 
They were both really quiet and reserved people. They were both very sheltered and had really never experienced the world. So I think that drew them together. John talked about how Aaron didn't really open up to a lot of people, but John could always tell what Aaron was thinking just by looking at her. They had this strong bond, especially in the beginning of their relationship. The beginning of a relationship that seemed, in many ways, like that of any two young people in love. At her job, Erin would scroll John's name on the countertops and talk about him constantly. Still, the relationship wasn't perfect, and the personality differences between Erin and John were apparent even from the beginning. And John's tendency to repress his emotions loomed over the relationship like a dark cloud. John talked about how he had to be really reserved with some of the things he had growing up. John's parents divorced when he was really young, and for some reason, John grew up really bottling his emotions in, and he never really talked about things, and that ended up causing conflict with him and Aaron. The first big test in their relationship came quickly when John enlisted in the Marines. When they started dating, he told her he was joining the Marines as soon as he got out of high school the following summer. And I mean, he was over at the house and stuff then, but after he left for the Marines, we didn't hardly see him at all. After he graduated high school, John went straight into the Marines that summer. During basic training and boot camp, he was not allowed to talk to Aaron by phone, so they communicated in like a very old-fashioned way for two 18-year-olds in 2012. They basically communicated via letters, and then it was, you know, Skype or texting and that kind of stuff, which I kind of felt like, in a way, was good because they could develop that friendship, you know, before other stuff got in the way. Bill and Laura Hevlin, they liked John, but they worried the relationship was going too quickly, too fast. They knew how naive Aaron was, and for her to just jump into this relationship and become so convinced that this was the guy she was ending up with really alarmed Aaron's parents. He's very quiet. You know, the majority of the time that they were together, he was not even in the state. <laughs> we didn't really get to know him that much because we just didn't spend that much time with him. Aaron's parents wanted her to slow down and take some time before jumping into this relationship, but they kind of came to realize that um, the more that they put a wedge between them, the further it would drive Aaron to John. So they accepted the relationship and tried to make the best of it. Aaron and John's romance continued to blossom, despite the distance and the Hevelin's concerns. And when John got leave that summer and returned to Oak Ridge, their relationship forged on full speed ahead. After several months in the Marines, John came home for a summer, and on July 4th, he took her out to a picnic and surprised her with a diamond ring. Erin loved fast food. She loved soda and candy, and one of her favorite beverages was Sprite. So during this 4th of July picnic, John slipped her diamond ring on top of her Sprite, and at first Erin didn't notice it, 
but John told her to look down and when she saw the ring and looked back up, her eyes were filled with tears and she just started screaming, yes, 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 I'll marry you. After John proposed, Aaron stayed in Oak Ridge while John went and continued his training in the military. Aaron wanted a nice wedding in Tennessee, but it turned out that John wouldn't be able to get leave. But the pair had good reason to want to get married quickly. In the Marines, military members can get better pay and better living options on the Marine bases if they are married and they get even more money if they have children. So John kind of had a financial incentive to get married right away. Every year, the Marines host an elegant birthday ball, celebrating the anniversary of their founding. That November, Aaron and John attended the celebration in Las Vegas, known to some as the marriage capital of the world. After the Marine Ball, they went to this little chapel on the Las Vegas Strip and eloped. It was not the wedding Aaron had always envisioned. None of her friends were there. Aaron didn't even have a regular wedding dress. She wore the same navy blue gown that she wore to the ball, and John was in his dress blues. It was kind of disappointing to elope like that without having any friends or family around, but it did help John increase his level in the military and get more money. Erin was now a married woman, but at the same time, she was still very much an 18-year-old girl. And as Erin entered this new phase of her life, the naivete that so many of her family and friends had noticed in her became even more apparent. The bizarre thing about their marriage is they still did not live together for a full another year. John was going to be shipped off to his first deployment in Japan, and so she stayed in Oak Ridge, but he was able to get the same benefits and rewards through the military because of the marriage. I don't think Erin understood what she was signing up for when she accepted the proposal from John. She was very, very much in love, but she had never lived out on her own. the Hevelins were concerned about their daughter's marriage. Since she was three weeks old, Erin had spent almost her entire life under their roof in the sheltered community of Oak Ridge. Laura decided that Erin needed a push towards independence. My oldest son had a condo. That's like a mile from our house. So after they got married, we had her move into the condo so that she could get used to living by herself in the town that she grew up in. They kind of left it to her to, like, start paying the bills on her own and take on these very adult responsibilities. That was mostly because Aaron's mom was very concerned that she would go from living in the sheltered life in her parents' house to now being a wife and eventual mom with John, who she had never really had lived with at all. So I do not think Erin knew what she was getting into when she agreed to marry John and how much her life would change. Although 18-year-olds think they know everything, she clearly like did not know what she would really be getting into. Though the condo provided Erin with a newfound independence, her day-to-day life didn't change much. She went to work at her job at Tractor Supply. She spent her spare time at her parents' house watching America's Got Talent and The Voice. But while Erin's life in Oak Ridge remained relatively the same, her husband's was changing fast. 
Aaron was entirely removed from the day-to-day responsibilities John faced as a Marine. And she was also unaware of the ways his new life was beginning to change and harden him. Because their relationship was mostly long distance and they only saw each other occasionally for the first almost entire year of their marriage, Aaron didn't realize what a big influence the Marines were having on John and what an abrupt personality change he had. John went from a pretty sweet, emotional, very much in love young man to this kind of hardened Marine who was used to hanging out with his friends and He got into drinking beer and and being involved with shooting guns and riding dune buggies through the desert, and he became a really tough guy um, that Aaron really didn't recognize in many ways. As John's deployment in Japan came to an end, Aaron began planning to join her husband at the Marine base in 29 Palms, California. She had spent little time outside of Oak Ridge, and once again, Aaron's naivete became a tension point for the Hevelins. So were you worried that she was talking about moving out there? Was I worried about her moving to California? I was concerned in the fact that she's a real homebody. If we went on vacation for more than two weeks, even though we were with her, she was saying she was ready to be home. Still, Erin was determined to be with John, and though Laura was nervous about her young, impressionable daughter moving across the country, she encouraged Erin to take control of her future. When it was time to set up the move, she did it herself. She set up her airplane ticket. She did it herself. You know, because I told her, you're married now. If you're old enough to be married, you're old enough to take care of this stuff. Before Erin left, she had one last visit with her good friend from the barn, Linda Comley. I remember the last day I was talking to her, she came out to the barn. She came out to see me before she left to go to California. We sat out there and talked for quite a long time. And you know what? The last thing I said to that gal, I said, Aaron, whatever you do, watch who you associate with. You're going in a different, different world. I said, you cannot trust everybody, you know? But I guess you didn't listen to me, did she? Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. The show is produced by Katie Ferguson with help from Becky Celestina, Camila Salazar, Sarah Grill, and Alyssa Martino. Huge thanks to Shanna Hogan. To learn more about Erin Corwin's story, pick up a copy of Shanna's new book, Secrets of a Marine's Wife, available at any bookstore or as an audiobook February 26. We'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. If you can't wait for even more Case Closed, you're in luck. Our second season is already available right now exclusively on Stitcher Premium. Season 2 focuses on Rusty Snyderman, 
an Atlanta family man who was shot in the parking lot of his son's preschool. It's a totally different story, but just as captivating. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash caseclosed, all one word, to listen now, and use the promo code CLOSED for a free month. That's stitcherpremium.com slash caseclosed and the promo code CLOSED.